This is the business of sports. Let's talk Super Bowl and Fox Sports. Guaranteed money isn't necessarily guaranteed. One major league soccer owner is leading a $50 million investment. The blurring of the lines between sports team owners and the sports gambling space. Michael Barr. How high can these valuations go? Evan Novi williams Off the field, the NBA has never been buzzier. And the leaders in the sports industry. Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred. Heidi O'Neill is president of direct-to-consumer at Nike. Then the race car driver, Elio Castro. Jared Smith, president of Ticketmaster. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Evan Novi williams Over the next hour, we will explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. Today, we sit down with Nanny Zosner, COO of the USTA's National Tennis Center. We'll talk about tennis and how the coronavirus is impacting the sport. We'll talk about that straight ahead on the Bloomberg Business of Sports show. But first, let's look at some of the top stories of the week. <laughs> yes. Let's start with Mike Gundy. Um, <laughs> the Oklahoma State football coach. Uh, and to bring you up to speed, folks, uh, Coach Gundy said that his goal is to return to the football building on May 1st because he hopes that the test for COVID-19 will be available in a few weeks to clear both employees and players. What do you think? Oh, man. I mean, he also said he was in favor of bringing players back because they're 18, 19, 20, 20 years old. They're healthy. They have the ability to fight this virus off. He also said it was essentially the flu. Um, All of this gets back to one of my life tenets that you should never trust a college football coach about anything he says that is not college football. Uh, (laughs) These guys, uh, you know, these guys are not experts in anything else. And also they tend to be so incredibly myopically focused on the job of recruiting and playing and, and, and putting a team on the field that they often, you know, just ignore things that are happening in the world. Uh, but this is a, a bad look. And I think you saw it pretty quickly, both the university, Oklahoma state and his athletic director, his boss both yeah. came out very quickly and, and distanced themselves uh, from the comments that he made. Well, look, I mean, especially if you're in Oklahoma uh, and you're in that bubble you're not seeing it from the rest of the world, and I get it. You know, it's like you're a football coach. You want to you want to play the game, and you want to get this going. But uh, Coach Gundy, come on, man! You're you're a man. You're forty. The yeah, yeah, who has a quote from a, a Power Five athletic director that just says, "Anything you don't want your coach to say, he did a great job of saying it." <laughs> <laughs> Which I think uh, I think sums that up uh, pretty quickly, and I, I do think it's good that like a lot of people jumped on this. Right, this was a conference call that Mike Gundy had with with reporters, and it sounds like even on the call itself there was uh, there was some pushback on it. So you know, college football coach said said the wrong thing, and I and it seems like you know people are recognizing that 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 he uh, he was maybe a little overzealous about uh, about his uh, his optimism for when football players were going to come back. Yeah, but he's got a mean bullet. What are you going to do? Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, let's move on here. Uh, this one, uh, a little more serious. Uh, we're talking about the impact of COVID-19 on the institutions. And, uh, yes, uh, a lot of colleges are, are really feeling the pain right now. Yeah, it's kind of an easy transition because, I mean, one of the things Mike Gundy did say, you know, is we got to get money flowing back through the state of Oklahoma. And, you know, there's no question that, you know, college sports, you know, a lot of these schools, maybe not the the biggest, biggest ones, but a lot of these schools are pretty cash strapped. And as you know, Michael, you know, they're making a lot of money on football. If football ends up 
not happening or being disrupted in some ways, I think there's going to be a, a pretty, pretty massive, massive impact on budgets around the country that could affect how much coaches get paid. It should affect how much coaches get paid. It should also affect how much money gets spent on facilities and, you know, capital projects. Uh, I, I, unfortunately, I think it may also affect how many sports get offered. You know, we saw Old Dominion cut its wrestling program about a week ago. That was a decision that the that the athletic director said was also influenced by, you know, budgetary pressure because of uh, because of the virus. I'd like to think that those are the last decisions that get made. You know, I'd like to think opportunities for student athletes are the things that schools would cling to at the very least before before cutting it. But I think there's no question that if football season doesn't happen in the way that it has in the past commercially, whatever that looks like. Um, there's going to be some pretty big ramifications in college sports. And just to give you an idea, uh, there is a tweet uh, involving uh, the Gophers and their program, and they're saying that uh, their program could lose between $10 million to $75 million based on early initial projections. So, uh, we're Yeah, Minnesota is the first, the first school, I think, that is actually like really – laid uh, really laid that stuff out i was also kind of caught by a uh, a, a comment that the uh, iowa state athletic director uh said when right. he uh when he was asked about all this uh and essentially you know he said that you know we're looking at three possibilities it's it's a blizzard that we hunker down for the winter it's Falmer's almanac predicting we're going to have a hard winter or we're facing the ice age <laughs> and if we can't p- play football this year it's the ice age there's no one in our industry right now that could reasonably forecast a contingency plan for how they would get through not playing any football games so, you know, that's a pretty pretty stark way of laying out exactly what the financial ramifications are for this. Finally, we <laughs> we got to talk about this. Um, NASCAR has been broadcasting a lot of uh, e-NASCAR races, the iRacing Pro Invitational Series. Now, on April 5th, they ran a simulated race is if you were at Bristol, and a lot of drivers who are on the circuit participate in the esports series one driver is Bubba Wallace uh, now the term rage quit in case anybody doesn't know it, it the bottom line is he got tangled up uh, in uh, with another driver uh, uh, Clint Boyer and uh, he got mad and uh, he, and he said okay I'm done that's it and he quit like about 11 laps into the race. And now it's, and, and people reacted to this and that, whatever. But more importantly, Wallace actually lost a sponsor. It's uh, the joint muscle cream company, Blue Emu. And they were not happy about it. Now, but this is the problem I've got with this. The executive <laughs> vice president of Blue Emu, Ben Blessing, was quoted as saying, can you imagine if he did that in real life on a track? No, because it's not real. <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry that you just answered your question in that statement if he did this in real life on a track. If I'm playing uh, a video game and I've got a gun and I shoot another person, are you going to come and tell me, can you imagine if he did that in real life? I, I don't. I don't understand that. I, I'm sorry. It's like you know, if, if you wanted to sever ties with Bubba Wallace, okay, 
But don't give me this and then tell me this is this is the final straw and this is why you did it. I, I'm sorry. I, that peeves me as if you didn't well, you're, you're mentioning some good points, and this is way more world, your world than mine, so I want to get you talking a little bit more on it. But my question for you, you know, we've seen, you know, after NASCAR events, you know, fighters end up fighting. We've seen guys throw helmets at cars when they're driving by, you know, some reckless stuff. Is it common for sponsors to just – drop you as a result of something you did on the track off the track is that does that happen often or is this just really a uh, kind of totally out of left field maneuver oh i mean it, it happens on the track yeah <laughs> this it doesn't happen when when you're playing a video game and i mean let's put this in perspective folks this is a video game and yes <laughs> i enjoy watching it and and i don't deny that one bit but to say, can you imagine him doing that in real life on the track? I, no, and it's, I, you know, come on, it, it just let's let's take a breath here, folks. It's now yeah. if you're not a fan of Bubba Wallace, that's one thing, but let's let's be real here. Is Bubba like a fiery guy? Is that his reputation? Well, well, I mean, if he feels like he's wronged, he'll he'll come back. Now he drives for Richard Petty Motorsports. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, I mean, and yes, you lost your cool, and uh, you know maybe you shouldn't have done that because you know it's there are some PC moments, and you're trying to keep your sponsors uh, happy. But I, I, this is <laughs> this is not real life. I'm sorry, I, you know. Also, rage quitting is a like time honored tradition in in video gaming. Any, I think anyone who's ever played a video game with somebody else uh, understands kind of how the emotions run high, and that happens. Uh, one other thing I will say on this: I didn't watch any of the of the iRacing NASCAR event. The only clip I saw was the third thirty second clip of of Bubba Wallace rage quitting, and Blue Emu is the principal brand in that clip. You know, it's it's they they have their logo or their name kind of written over his rearview mirror. You know, so so the only thing I watched of this race was was a clip that had Blue Emu's uh, logo and name in it. So I mean, obviously, I'm not going to tell the company how to spend its money, but I would imagine they got some pretty darn good bang for the buck out of you know the fact that the viral clip that happened during that race was one in which their uh, their logo is front and center. He, he also said, and this is uh, what Blessing said also with Blue Emu, uh, talking to Action Network, that they thought they were sponsoring uh, Wallace. It was a blessing in disguise, but they found out that they aren't sponsoring a professional driver, but someone like my 13-year-old son who broke his controller while building a house in a game. Wow. I, don't get it. I do <laughs> not get it. <laughs> well, this relationship I, will not be uh, be be revived at a later date. <laughs> oh man! Okay, let's get to our interview with Danny Zosner, COO of the USTA's National Tennis Center. Thanks so much for joining us. I want to start off with the facility that's being used right now. I understand that it's being used as a temporary hospital unit. Can you describe more about that? So uh, we, we've actually got multiple purposes going on here at the same time. Uh, in Lewis Armstrong Stadium, a week ago Monday, our partners at Restaurant Associates started packaging about 25,000 meals per day, and that is going to uh, the workers at the Javits Center along with uh, underprivileged kids from the New York City school system. And these packages are a combination of six meals in it, so it's supposed to, meant to last two days, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for two days. And they're going 6 a.m. to about 11 p.m. with two shifts. 
uh, and they're utilizing all the open space they possibly can in Armstrong, including on the court itself. And then in uh, in the indoor training center, uh, where we house 12 indoor courts that we use year-round for our tennis programs, and then it gets converted into multiple purposes for the Open. We do a Amex fan experience, and we do our hospitality program out there, and we usually hold back six courts for player indoor practice. And that the city asked us going through the Office of Emergency Management to see if they can convert that into a 350-bed hospital. And they started working on that last week to receive patients. They're breaking that up into three groups, the first 150 beds in one section of the courts, and then another 150, and then probably at least another 50 in the third section, maybe more. So for for listeners who don't know, you know, the the tennis facility is out in Flushing, Queens. It's pretty close to to Elmhurst Hospital, which is is one of the most uh, stressed hospitals in the city, I believe, right now. I'm curious, when when they reach out to you, what does that decision, what does that conversation look like on the USTA side? Is it an immediate yes? Kind of what do you guys have to talk about before you say okay to converting, you know, those facilities into temporary hospital? It's a very fair question. We we started hearing about two weeks ago where the governor said they, they needed upwards of a million to two million square feet of open space uh, for incremental hospital beds. I don't remember the exact number of hospital beds they were looking for, uh, but that was the square footage they were looking for. Now, we don't have anything along those lines here, but rightfully, uh, cities, departments, the Parks Department and OEM started thinking about what are the really big structures in the city, and they thought about Arthur Ashe Stadium, which seems obvious, but the fact is, while it's the largest tennis stadium in the world, it's not really conducive for open space. The court itself not is only about 6,000. Exactly right. So I, when they came out here to talk to me about it, I said, you know, we do have the indoor training center. It won't get you a million, but it'll probably get you close to 100,000. So it's not nearly the scale of Javits, uh, but certainly at the same time, 350 to 500 beds is a lot better. Uh, when you think about East Elmhurst, we've been part of the Queens community for over 100 years. The U.S. Open has been. And the fact is East Elmhurst is three and a half miles from where we are right here. So they are right mm. in our neighborhood. And they, you know, everyone knows New York City is the epicenter for the country. Well, East Elmhurst right now is the epicenter for New York City. Uh, that hospital is completely overwhelmed with the volume of patients it's been seeing. So, you know, we want to do whatever we possibly can. Most of us are sitting around doing virtually nothing in terms of trying to help fight this battle. We're not in the medical field, so what can we possibly do? So it was a very easy decision for the USTA to support the Queens community. And I think it's great that you guys are doing it. We are a business show, so I am curious. Are you, do you get paid for, do they pay rent for that? Do you get paid for this? Who, who kind of foots the bill for kind of all this coming together and then on the back end kind of unwinding it all? So I'm sure there are real estate firms out there that are, you know, providing spaces to the city and they're charging rent for it, and God bless them. But, you know, as a tenant of the city, it did not think like that was the thing for us to be doing right now. Uh, so we're not charging rent for it. We've only asked them to any out-of-pocket expenses we might incur. We've just asked them to cover. Uh, but what the city did is they hired a firm company out of uh, Galveston, Texas, called SLS. And they're, they, they get kind of special in this disaster relief type stuff. So they're building this hospital from scratch. They're responsible for everything from creating the rooms to all the infrastructure, to the beds, to the nurses and the doctors, all the respiratory equipment. Whatever's needed in there is what they coordinate, and, and they will actually operate the hospital. One thing about that is it's got to be a lot to prepare for something like this because we've never experienced anything like this uh, ever. I mean, to where sports has come to a grinding halt and everybody is trying to pitch in to beat this virus. And New York is the epicenter for the whole thing. Can you tell us about the 
the emotional standpoint uh, and and what you guys are going through. Yeah, there's there's no question. You know, listen, the the U.S. Open is that it start the main draw of the Open is scheduled to start August 31st. That's that's the Monday before Labor Day as the traditional start of the Open every single year. And when the virus, the first conversations coming out of China in January, we're sitting there saying, oh, my God, it's not till August. We have a long runway to, before we really have to try and figure this out. Well, you know, now it's April. You know, it's how, while it's been going at a snail's pace on the one end, time is starting to fly by us. So, you know, our full intentions are to host the Open. We're, we're going to go by what the governing bodies tell us from the city and the state and the federal government. We're not going to act foolishly in this process. Uh, so we have to plan accordingly to that. But at the same time, we have to help the city build a hospital, get it up and running, take patients in, and hopefully see this curve flatten as quickly as possible. We're an overflow for what's going on in the community. The intention here is not to be a standalone hospital indefinitely. Uh, So once the hospitals can start to get their breath back in them and they can start to see patients the way they normally would, you know, this thing will close down quickly and we can start to clean up and we can even hopefully resume our ordinary tennis programming, our summer camps, and then build towards the U.S. Open. But that's such a long way away. And we just really have to rely on on the city and state officials to help us guide us through that process. To to that point, how how long does do you think it takes once you know once the city says you know guys thank you very much we don't need your facility anymore? How long does it take to kind of unwind everything that's been done to get it back to whatever the kind of original tennis purpose was? I think when even when you see things get built up from a, from a concert perspective, you know it may take you days to build these things, but you're out in 24 hours. All of this stuff that they're bringing oh, in is quick. either rented okay. or it, it's got to get out of here quickly. I think the cleaning and the sanitizing portion of it will take longer than that. Uh, I would anticipate that from the time the hospital closes, it'll probably still be another two weeks probably before we would be able to reopen. We're seeing a lot of sports team owners, sports leagues, sports entities, nonprofits, stepping up to the plate during this time. I'm curious if you think that kind of when everything goes back to normal, do you think that fans are going to remember, you know, think about the companies that that did right by the city that kind of opened their doors when when people needed it? And there may be kind of a a shifting of fan dollars to to, to the groups that they appreciate having done the most in, in a hard time. I think there could be an initial aspect to it, but, you know, if we're thinking about long-term, I don't really think two, three years from now someone's going to be rating how the sports franchises and the leagues and the organizations within the tri-state area responded to the virus, and that's where people are going to put their dollars to. You know, I I have this dream, and hopefully it becomes a reality, but, you know, it's quite possible we may be the first large-scale international event that comes back to the stage at the end of August, and what an incredible thing for New York City to welcome the world to the U.S. Open. We broadcast over two hundred countries uh you know that's still four and a half months away and there's a lot that's going to happen between now and then but that would be an incredible opportunity for the city to showcase to the world how we recovered and what you know how the city's back on track how big would that be when we were talking about this i mean this this is the u.s open is always something that is huge especially for new york Can, can you expand more on that on on what this would mean yeah, well, financially for the city, well as as well as for the organization. I mean, we're 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 the national governing body of tennis in this country, and the, we fund our mission through the U.S. Open primarily. So, for, obviously, for the organization, it's enormous. But for the city, if you go back to when the one time the city hosted the Super Bowl 
several years ago, the economic impact was reported to be about 400 to $450 million, which is an impressive number. The U.S. Open, on an annual basis, since we've been in the city for 100 years, uh, is generating over $800 million of economic impact for the city. It's incredible for tourism. More than 16% of our fans come from outside this country traditionally. More than 40% in total come from outside the tri-state area. And these folks that are coming from outside the tri-state area, they're not just coming for a day. They're coming for a weekend, for a week. They're staying in the local hotels. They're flying in here, eating in local restaurants. So it's a huge thing for the city. And, and actually, the week before and after Labor Day, as tourism starts to die off, we're still really full throttle at the U.S. Open from a tourism perspective. So it, it's fabulous for the city hotel and the whole ec- economy of the city. Have you guys heard from any you know government entity, whether at the state or federal level, kind of a maybe guidance or thought process on, you know, as, as you said, a lot of people are coming from overseas to come here. Just just any thought on, on, on what things might look like come, you know, late August when it's time to, to hopefully put this thing on? No, as a matter of fact, I know that uh, our the CEO, or Mike Dow, uh, has a call today with someone within the Trump administration just to give a perspective from tennis and what uh, tennis means to this country and what's going on right now and the impact mm-hmm. it's having in the local facilities throughout the country. Uh, so the U.S. Open year is a big economic engine for the organization, but we also want to promote the growth of the sport. And right now, all the facilities are obviously closed throughout the country. So we want to make sure that those facilities are able to stay in business when they come back up and running. Well, that's that's another thing about that is a lot of tournaments have been canceled. I mean, just recently uh, we've lost uh, Wimbledon. And, uh, you know, it, I said this earlier about the impact of the coronavirus tennis i I believe will always recover but right now you guys are everybody is in a financial crunch how is it for you guys right now listen right now we're we're obviously our staff is working remotely for the most part we have a small contingent of staff out here at the tennis center helping support the city with the initiatives going on by and large the entire organization's you know, our offices are closed, but everyone's working remotely. There are conversations going on every single day to try and understand the impact this is having for us, both short and long term. When you think about the U.S. Open, you talk about economic engine for the city, but we hire over 7,000 people to work this event, and they're just working for a day or a week. They, you know, we, we start ramping up in February, so it means so much for the community. We're working with so many local restaurants. We're taking thousands of hotel rooms. So, yeah, I mean, every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. It's really unfathomable. You've mentioned a few times kind of the import that, you know, this one event has on your kind of the USTA's bottom line year round. You know, I think it's kind of similar and correct me if I'm wrong to the NCAA, you know, which makes the bulk of its money during one event, the men's basketball tournament, and then uses that money to kind of promote college sports as a mandate, you know, across the country for the other 364 days. Uh, can you give us a sense just how important the U.S. Open as an event is for, for your bottom line every year? Oh, there's no question. It, it it does provide, you know, it's kind of our annual bake sale, we jokingly say, for the organization, <laughs> and it funds the mission across the country. I and mean, we've got 17 sections. It's pretty good bake sale. They, yeah, it's a, it's a great bake sale, and it tastes quite good annually. So, uh, yeah, there's there's no question. We want to host the Open. Uh, we're not going anywhere. If it ends up that the virus impacts the ability to host the Open this year, we'll be back in 2021. But right now, it's you know full steam ahead to plan. You, j- you just don't show up August, turn the lights on, and, and start playing tennis. So there's a lot of work that goes on starting the day after each U.S. Open for the following year. 
I was looking at the, the financial reports this morning. It, it looks like, and, and correct me if this is wrong, you guys do about you know four hundred and fifty million in revenue every year, and and the open itself is about three eighty. Is that is are those numbers right? That's approximately correct. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, and, and is there any? I mean, thinking about obviously worst case scenario is this event can't happen. I mean, are there reserves? Are there? I mean, anything you can say about insurance policies? Kind of how do you guys think about? The disaster scenario, business-wise, that that might be, you know, a worst-case scenario here this year. Yeah, I won't get into all the specifics, but uh, our our mandate is to is to protect the organization, and and so there are reserves that kind of our own rainy day fund. I wanted to bring up a, another segment here, uh, and I guess it, I know this sounds silly, but it seems like now we're seeing a lot of people doing the esports thing, and people are loving that. And, People are watching that on TV. And have you guys ever thought about maybe doing that? Uh, some sort of an esports segment where you're playing tennis, but you got Serena Williams uh, playing against Naomi Osaka, and they are and they're battling out uh, on TV. So, ironically, last summer at the uh, National Tennis Center, we hosted the largest esporting event ever in in the world uh, with Fortnite. And they paid, out about, uh, yeah. thir- they, they paid out about they paid $30 million in prize money and $30 million for a weekend event. And it ended up that there was a 16-year-old kid from Pennsylvania who won first prize, which was uh, $3 million. So if you're not thinking about esports, uh, your head is in the sand. There's no question about it. As the national was that the biggest body, event you guys have done that's not tennis at that facility? Out, from out, a revenue yeah, standpoint? Outside of tennis, yes. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was really phenomenal what they did. It was no no expenses bar to create something for the. It was like a thank you to their fans for uh, what they're able to do. Their you know the number of people playing that event, uh, Fortnite worldwide is, is staggering. Uh, so I, listen, there's there's no question NBA owners and what they're doing getting into that sport. But you know we don't represent the players as the governing body. We represent the sport in this country, so we can't actually. We could suggest to Serena what you might want to get involved, but that's not our role. Uh, but, you know, I think we always look at opportunities, and um, eSports is, is something where we like to think that our facilities are ideally suited for them. Whether or not we're, we're the one to create an eSport league for tennis is, uh, remains to be seen. A lot of people obviously are turning to esports as a way of getting you know younger generations uh, interested in their product. You guys are doing some interesting things as well on the tennis side, trying to get young people you know interested in tennis. Net generation being one of them. Can you give us an update on kind of where things stand as you guys think about the next generation or next generation or two of, of future tennis players? Yeah, well, there's two things. I mean, there's, there's no question that the data shows us that when people come out to the Open for the first time that really didn't know that much about tennis, uh, they have a phenomenal time. 95% plus of the people that come out to the U.S. Open have an incredibly positive experience, which is really unprecedented for sports and entertainment. And if you have a great experience at a sporting event, chances are you're going to go pick up a tennis racket and play tennis for the first time, and that's what the data shows us. So for the Open, we've been really making a conscientious effort to skew younger with our audience, and that's why we introduced fan week, uh, which used to be our qualifying tournament the week before. It's free. Uh, last year with our partners at Chase, we introduced a whole series of concerts in the evening, free concerts. And so what we're starting to see is the demographics of the Open are shifting younger, and that can only help us grow the sport of tennis. On the net generation side, ironically, people are not out on tennis courts right now, but if families go out to netgeneration.com, 
they'll see on our website that what we're doing is telling people you're staying home, you can't play tennis in public facilities, but there's things you could do watching our videos. You could stay healthy. You can exercise your brain and your body either on your driveway or in your front yard or wherever you have the opportunity to do those things. And Net Generation is an opportunity for us to really help grow the sport at a very young age. And we've, it's been in existence for the last two to three years now, and we're starting to really see the growth from that. What are you seeing from a from a demographic kind of shift? I've interviewed a number of young black female tennis players, obviously, who say that, you know, watching Venus and Serena do so well for so long kind of ins- inspired them. You know, there, there are some young black male tennis players that are also, you know, playing very well right now. W- what are you seeing demographically as a, as a shift or just a change in, in maybe the, the tennis playing population here in the U.S.? Well, there's no question in the last 20 years, if you look Tiger Woods, what he's done for golf, and you look what Serena and Venus have done for tennis, there's, there's no question the impact that they've had on the sport. And I think for us, the, the big radical shift that we've seen in the last 10-plus years is there used to be data from the U.S. Open that showed unless you had two Americans playing in the finals, and I'm going back 15, 20 years now, that the ratings would be much lower. If you looked at 20 years' worth of data from the 80s to 2000, you know, if you had two U.S players in the finals, then you had your highest ratings for those years. If you had one, that would be the next set. If you had no Americans in the finals, those would be your lowest ratings. But tennis has become such an international sport in the last 10 years. People don't think about where Roger Federer is from. They just think of him as a tennis rock star. And that's the type of stuff that helps grow the sport demographically as well as anything else, as much as having homegrown talent from the United States. So you look at the last 10 years, our ratings continue to grow. There haven't been a lot of Americans in the finals on the male side, but at the same time, you've had Roger, you've had Rafa, you've had Novak, and you've had other players that really transcend necessarily where the country they're from. They're just incredible athletes that people love to see. Have you had a problem with youth programs because, well, especially now with the coronavirus, but there's some sports have been having a slump in that. Have you seen that in tennis? We've uh, we've been one of the fortunate few. You're absolutely right. A lot of the sports have seen that slump. Uh, we we've been fairly level. If anything, we've seen a little growth, but we have not been down. So we've been very fortunate in that regard because we really started to hit it hard at the time when those before the slump started for many sports. Uh, recognizing that you know while people didn't view tennis as a team sport, that it was really important for kids to feel like they could become part of a team when they're playing tennis, and that was part of the initiative. And then really launching Net Generation and getting providers out there that understand the sport, uh, that were sanctioned to participate in the sport, that were teaching the sport the correct way, all can only help grow the youth movement in tennis. You just mentioned Roger Federer, and I'm, I would love to hear your thoughts on kind of this generation of, of, of great tennis players, specifically, you know, the big three, Roger, Rafa, and Novak, uh, kind of how omnipresent they've been for so long, and, and what you think about kind of the next generation of stars coming up below them, and kind of their ability to kind of keep a spotlight on tennis, tennis in a way that kind of these big three have for really, you know, two plus decades now. So I happen to have gotten into the to the U.S. Open business uh, on the tail end of the uh, Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi era, and I got to mm. be here for when uh, Pete won his last championship. And when Pete retired and then Andre a couple years later, people were kind of like, well, what's going to happen to the U.S. Open and tennis in this country? And as I said, what really happened is it just becomes so much more international. And Roger Federer came in and won the U.S. Open five years in a row. And during those five years, because he is such an incredible humanitarian and person and athlete, no one sat here one time saying, oh, my God, I can't believe an American didn't win that. It was like, oh, my God, did you see what Roger did? 
And now last year at the 2019 U.S. Open, I just happened to be sitting here with my kids watching a Roger match. And I said to them, you just don't ever really know. You, you're seeing, you know, unarguably the greatest tennis player of all time. And this may be his last match. He says he's going to keep playing, but you don't know. And I try to explain to them, when I was growing up, all people did was talk about Babe Ruth in baseball. Now, Babe Ruth played 40 years before I was even alive. But the fact is, people are seeing Roger Federer now, and 40 years from now, they'll refer to him in tennis the way people talk about Babe Ruth in baseball. And I, I was trying to get my kids to appreciate what they were actually witnessing on the court. And the same thing for Serena. I mean, what they've done for the sport is is really remarkable. I think one thing, too, about the the sport that always impressed me is that you always knew the names involved, especially the big names. I mean, even even as a kid, I knew who Rod Laver was, and and, and I can go on down the line. I mean, and, you know, even when I saw Rod Laver on those old Battle of the, uh, the – champions or whatever it was on ABC where the other sports athletes would contend with each other. Uh, that was introduced to stuff like that. And and I think the youth today uh, were blessed with so much media involved that uh, they can identify with these with these stars. If I'm wrong about no that, question. let me know. No, you're spot on. And, and social media is obviously, you know, they're, you're talking about followings tens of millions for, for several of these players. And while, you know, it's quite possible we'll never see anybody of, of, of Roger's character and, and abilities, uh, you know, there'll be another generation of tennis superstars that are going to come down the pike in the next five to ten years, and we may not be able to identify who those top three are on the male and men and women's side today, uh, but we'll be on the phone talking about it five years from now about this next great ring of players. Danny, do you, I mean, I think we have a lot of listeners that have probably been to a U.S. Open and maybe understand kind of the, the, the sprawling nature of the layout and the fact that the, the, the food is fantastic and you can get, you know, a ticket and go for the entire day and bounce around between courts. Do you feel like you guys were kind of on the, the cutting edge of where a lot of sporting events are shifting to now, where it certainly feels as though kind of like the festival atmosphere is something that people, you know, really want to embrace, even at sporting events, where just going to a, a game and sitting down and watching the game and leaving no longer is, is maybe enough for fans anymore? Uh, I, I, you're spot on. We're not going to sit here and pat ourselves on the back for being at the forefront of this, but there's no question that whether it's celebrity chefs that have been part of our program for 20-plus years or when we transformed the site five years ago and we started to think about the fact that we needed to be more elevated because the you know, the, as the fans get younger, their attention spans are going to be much shorter, and they're only going to be able to watch one match at a time for so long, so now they could actually have a view for four or five matches at the same time, or what we're doing from a social perspective. And, you know, across the board, the merchandise that we're offering always being with the hottest brands. Yeah, this was, I always felt like it wasn't my job in terms of who won or lost on the court, but in terms of once you came through the gate, if you're not watching tennis, I want this experience for you to be unrivaled in, in sports or entertainment. And so, you know, that water cooler conversation you're going to have the next day and someone says to you, how was the Open? Who did you see play? And it might be, I don't really know who I saw, but I had an unbelievable time. Sorry, since you guys have been ahead of the curve, we'll let you, we'll let you out on this question. What's next? What are you guys thinking about three, four, or five years down the line that might be something that other sports leagues are doing uh, 10 years from now? 
Well, my sense is I'm going to continue to eat my way through Manhattan and the world and going to every type of sporting and special event out there to see you know, there's an idea you could steal from somebody every single day. So uh, mm-hmm. we're going to keep looking. Where, you know, we're going to have to react to the coronavirus, too. You know, What's the fans' perspective going to be on what they want that sporting event to be like? And we want to be ahead of the curve on that as well. If we're fortunate enough to host the Open this year, we want to, we want to impact it in a very impactful way for the fans so that they come out here and say, the USTA really understands the impact of the coronavirus and, and they're doing the right things by the fans and the players and everyone else involved in the event. So, you know, it's not necessarily about what's in three to five years, but how do we, how do we attack this even for 2020? Danny Zosner, COO of the USTA's National Tennis Center. Thank you so much for joining us. We really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, guys. I'm just impressed that the USTA, uh, they, they're going to come out on the other side. Um, he might be even stronger because I, I enjoy hearing some of the things that they're trying to do back for the community from preparing food for underprivileged children uh, and on and on and on. And it's, it shows you the, the spirit of not only just New York City, but the U.S. in general during the coronavirus crisis. Yeah, and you heard him say, you know, when, when the city reached out, to ask if you know they had facilities that that could host you know hundreds of beds, it was an easy choice for them. You know, it wasn't didn't sound like it was a particularly long conversation. Uh, so yes, I think kudos to the, the USTA, no question. Um, and you know, as we talked about with the NCAA, you know, I, I hope you know for their sake financially they can get this event in. Um, hopefully, the the country will be in a place where where they can do that. Um, but yes, I mean, it's uh, I, I'm, I'm happy for them. I'm glad that they're doing it, uh, and I'm and I'm proud of them for making that choice and being so reactive to it. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business and Sports, the number of the week. Time now for the number of the week. This is going to be an easy one for you, Because <laughs> oh you, you, it you said is. said that to me before. No, <laughs> this is going to be good. The number is 7,000. Seven thousand uh, dollars, exact. Seven thousand dollars, man! You tell me these things are easy, and then I uh, then I lay an egg when we're when we're talking about it. Uh, give me give me a hint. You wrote it. <laughs> oh, uh, is this golf simulators? Yes, yes, yes. Oh. Yeah, no, this is a fun one. Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned it actually because I was going to talk about it on the show. Um, yeah, so you know, no surprise that as golfers around the country are you know thinking about a, a season that may be cur- curtailed or, or might even be uh, kaput on the course, they're buying up golf simulators. Sales of at-home golf simulators, mats, nets are going through the roof right now, uh, and some of these, as you said, cost as much as seven thousand. There's even more expensive ones. I didn't I didn't put them in the story, but you know, if you are uh, if you have got some money to burn and you love golf, there are some pretty sweet setups you can put in your basement or in your garage or in your backyard that do a pretty good job of simulating what golf feels like and looks like. Oh, man. I, if I played golf, I would love to have one of these. I was looking at the picture of it. Oh, that looks good. It's <laughs> funny, yeah. So I was doing doing the story, obviously, was was on a lot of these websites, and now every ad I, I have, like banner ad on a website, <laughs> is you know one of these beautiful golf simulators with blackout curtains and a projector, and I'm like, oh, man, I wish I had the money to spend on, uh, on one of those things. It's just taunting me right now. <laughs> you have been listening to the Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here 
here each and every week at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcasts. You can catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. I'm Evan Novi Williams on Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. Join us again next week. We're going to speak with the biggest and brightest in the sports business world. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world.